Uh, you can have your Bibles handy today. Once again, as has been the case for a couple of weeks now, I'm not going to be in a direct passage today. Uh, we've been working through some uh, foundation as we step into Genesis 15. Uh, Genesis 15 begins uh, a, a very important narrative within the scriptures, and the reason why I'm spending so much time founding it is because we do not believe that, that Genesis 15 just forms the narrative of, of Abraham and the promises to Abraham, but, but we recognize that Genesis 15 is thematically extremely important within the scope of scriptures, particularly as it relates to redemption. So two weeks ago, we formed a, a foundation for how it is that we interpret the Word of God, uh, that, that we come with with assumptions uh, that the Bible is a unified book, that the Bible is a deliberate book, that the Bible is, is a spiritual book. Uh, I'm, I'm missing one. The Bible is a unified book, a deliberate book, that the Bible is a... Who was listening? I wasn't either. Um, uh, the Bible is a spiritual book. There's one more in there somewhere. And then uh, we, we build upon uh, those foundations then uh, a, a manner of how we interpret the Word of God. We interpret naturally. We interpret grammatically, contextually. We interpret, um, um, now I'm going to miss that one too, grammatical, contextual, historical, and then, of course, we, we interpret prayerfully. And so we have this method of interpretation, and that's where it comes from. And that method of interpretation leads us to seeing uh, various themes throughout the Word of God. And the theme that we talked about last week was the theme of the kingdom. So we thought through the theme of the kingdom, and particularly the conflict of kingdoms that is happening between God, who, has, who established a kingdom, and that kingdom has been in conflict today against Satan, who is attempting to establish his own kingdom and how it is that God will consummate his kingdom in a situation where in heaven one day will be every single person who has responded to the love of God and thus chosen to love God back and there will be a kingdom where God rules over his people, a people who has chosen to love him and everyone who has rejected God from the beginning to the end will end up in this place of separation, eternal separation from him in the lake of fire. So last week we established this idea of the kingdom for the next two weeks and then we'll be into Genesis 15. For the next two weeks we are going to talk about the covenants and I, I thought about jamming it into one week, but last week I went for like an hour and 15 minutes, and I thought, let's not do that again today. So I went ahead and broke it up into two, and I'm hoping that, that that'll still be able to flow nicely, and, and uh, that uh, we won't lose too much between week one and week two with these covenants. So we, we've talked through these things, and what, what we are seeing is that there is a program, right? There is a design, that the Bible is not just a scattered remnant of books, that it is, as we've said, a unified book. It is a co- coherent message from beginning to end. And we see in that message uh, promises of a kingdom. We also see in that message various covenants. And, and there are covenants that are made, and, and, and they are not just individual covenants that have nothing to do with one another, but we actually find throughout all of the covenants that there are certain covenants that are connected, that have a purpose that, that flows together into this program that God has put together. And so this week we're going to consider this other major factor in God's dealings with humanity, one that of course becomes important in Genesis 15 because this uh, formulates the first of the five covenants that we're going to talk about today. And it revolves around these covenants that the Bible records specifically about redemption. Now when we speak of God's kingdom program, as we considered it last week, the merging of that system with what we see within the, the God's covenants to man uh, bring us to five primary covenants that I'd like to talk about. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Pal- what's called the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. Within these five covenants, we find what we believe to be the whole of God's plan for redemption. Now, there are other covenants in the Bible. We've talked already about the Noah covenant, the covenant that God made with mankind in the days of Noah, whereby he says that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And he puts a rainbow in the sky that he might remember his covenant with mankind through the ages and the generations. So there are other covenants as well. However, these are the five that we introduce to you today as it relates to the theme of redemption. 
But before we do that, I want to distinguish what we're talking about this morning from other biblical systems. Now, last week we talked about uh, breaking the Bible up into various ages. Now, historically, that's been what is called dispensationalism. And there are various types of dispensationalism. There's traditional or historic dispensationalism, and there's progressive dispensationalism and such. And we're not going to get into the weeds of that. That's for another forum and for another day. But we are generally what we would call a dispensational church. Now, as I say that, I am careful in this regard. Um, Labels are good for what labels are good for, but labels are fundamentally weak in, in a very particular way. The nice thing about a label is that I can talk about an entire system of teaching. I can teach you a, um, a, a great deal of information, and then if I give that, that, that whole body of information a label, then when I use that label next time, I can generally expect that those who are under the teaching can draw from all of that teaching without me having to rehash it all because I've labeled it. So when we talk about uh, a word such as dispensationalism or when we talk about, as we've talked about before, uh, we're going to talk today about covenant theology or we're going to talk about, if you talk about reformed theology or if you talk about evangelicalism or, or, or orthodoxy or any of these things that we would typically uh, use as a label, the value of that label is that it allows us to understand in a very quick way a broad amount of teaching that gives us a bit of a frame of reference or a reference point from which we can, we can then spring off of. The problem, however, with labels is that labels can become not just defining of a body of truth, but they can actually come to define us. And this is not healthy. Where we hear a body of teaching... And we say, well, I generally see this in the Bible and this in the Bible and this in the Bible. And someone will say, oh, okay, that's this ism. That's such and such ism. Oh, okay. Well, then I guess I'm a such and suchist. And now that I'm a such and suchist, because I believe in such and such ism, because I believe these certain things in the Bible that are such and such ism, well, now everything else that the such and such ism teaches, I must now believe too. Because I'm a such and suchist. And so now I have actually put myself in a place where I'm no longer necessarily following the Bible where the Bible's going. Instead, I'm following a system that has been, that, that, that has been put in place to organize the Bible. And this puts the cart before the horse. And so when we talk about these words of dispensationalism or covenant theology, uh, when we talk about the various things that we believe about the kingdom and how I've, defi- uh, how I've defined the kingdom, what we're doing here... Uh, Remember, this is foundation. And the reason why I call it foundation is because what this is doing is this is helping us understand how we come to the conclusions we come to. Because not everyone comes to these conclusions. That doesn't mean we're loyal to the isms. The labels are not very important. The isms are not very important. Even if I call myself a biblicist, that even comes with its own baggage as it relates to certain movements and such. And so what we have attempted to do is, as we've built, we build upon, this is how, this is, these are the assumptions we make that leads us to this manner of interpreting the Bible, that leads us to this strategy for interpreting the Bible, that leads us to thinking about the various aspects of what the Bible says along these terms, and that leads us then to seeing these themes. However, as we do that, what we are attempting to do is draw out the scriptures, Not everything within any of these systems that I'm talking about is all right, all wrong. There are different perspectives. There's reasons for those perspectives. And so I give that caveat once again. That as we talk about these terms, even as we talk about our own terms, we we associate ourselves with fundamentalism. We associate ourselves with the Baptist uh, denomination. We associate ourselves with these things. But we associate ourselves with them for what they have historically been. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are the labels that those are not necessarily the hill the labels are not necessarily the hills to die on right the things that that those labels express are things that we believe and the label sums it up nicely in a manner that packages it and that allows it to be reflected but it's the the undergirding truths If the labels change, and by the way, they all have, right? Baptist Association, Fundamentalist Association, those those labels have taken different associations than what they originally might be intended to have been. 
There may even come a day where we can't use those labels anymore because of the associations they have. But that's okay because that's just a label. What we're loyal to is the truths that those labels are intended to reflect. So that when I say I'm a Baptist, there's supposed to be some fundamental truths that go along with that that people are supposed to understand. And that's the value of having the label to begin with. Okay, so what I'd first like to do is I'd like to make a distinction here. We're talking about the covenants. Last week we talked about the kingdom. Uh, just because we talk about the kingdom doesn't mean we're associated with every type of kingdom theology. We're not kingdom now theologians. We're not these sorts of things, right? There's a lot of different theologies out there uh, that speak of the kingdom in a manner that, that, that we would not agree with, though we do recognize that there is a theme in the scriptures related to the kingdom. It's the same with the covenants. We recognize that there are covenants in Scripture and that these covenants have a relationship one to another, uh, but this is disassociated from what we would generally call or term covenant theology, of which we are not. Let me explain to you uh, the brief difference between these ideas. Covenant theology is a system established during the Calvinism, Calvinist Reformation that organizes the Bible specifically through the lens of what they call the theological Covenants. And the first is what's called, the, uh, the, and, and they see this through three primary overarching theological covenants and then through literal covenants underneath those. So they see a three covenant system. The first covenant is called the covenant of redemption. And that's a covenant that God makes with himself within the Godhead. And that is a covenant that they have covenanted in the Godhead to redeem mankind. And that works itself out into two theological covenants as it relates to the Bible. And that would be the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. They see the covenant of works as having been in place through the time of Adam, where uh, God was expecting Adam and Eve to not do this thing. And when they did this thing, uh, that covenant of works fell or gave way to what would then be the covenant of grace. And they would believe that that announcement was effectively in Genesis 3.15, when uh, God promises that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And from that point on, mankind has lived under a covenant of Grace And that covenant of grace is a consistent string of covenants of grace leading all the way to the new covenant or through to Messiah. Now, there are many points of this that we would agree with. We would certainly agree, as we'll talk about today, the idea of a progression of covenants through Abraham, through Moses, through David, up to Jesus. However, we would disagree with the broader arrangement of the covenants as it relates to the way that they see these covenants of grace. Now, I would also agree that every single one of the covenants that is there, that's listed, the Noah covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant are all covenants of grace. So we would agree that those are all covenants of grace. We would disagree with the arrangement of those broader theological covenants. We would agree that grace has always been a part of God's operating procedure all the way into the Old Testament. We see grace. However, we'd also see grace in God's interactions with Adam in his day. Likewise, we would also see a workspace covenant, as we mentioned, in the law of Moses, unlike the others that we see here. And understand that that works-based covenant in the law of Moses puts Israel into a very unique place within God's plan through history. And that's where covenant theologian really diverges from our own way of looking at the Bible. Covenant theology sees Israel as a part of the same strand, the same heritage that now is rooted in the church. So that Israel was under a covenant of grace that then gave way to the church. And this leads to what is often called replacement theology. And this is probably the biggest difference. We both recognize covenants. We both see grace in Old Testament and New Testament. But since covenant theology does not see God's dealings as different over time in the way a dispensational theology would, that within the the scope of every single age, God is adding more information and he is dealing with man differently based upon the information that God has given to them and the accountability that he has given unto them. And because that they don't, organize history into that way, the covenant theologian is not going to say God was doing something with Israel and doing something different with the church and that there's still a plan for Israel that the church existing does not actually threaten. And because of this, they generally recognize the church to be the natural successor to Israel in God's plan 
which means when we talk about Israel today, in a theological sense or in a spiritual sense, we're not talking about a nation of people. Rather, we're simply talking about the church. They believe that the church is Israel, that the church has received or does receive all of Israel's promises unto themselves. The dispensationalist does not see it this way. The dispensationalist largely believes that God has worked through different people groups and that the promises which he made to the nation of Israel remain in effect to Israel, to be fulfilled by that nation according to God's will and in God's time. To this end, we do not believe that God has replaced the church or replaced Israel with the church. We believe that the church has certainly assumed Israel's purpose for this time. I think Romans 11 makes that fairly clear. We'll not get into that today. But we do believe that the church has assumed Israel's purpose, but not assumed Israel's promises. And we have that purpose for this age until God is ready then to draw Israel back to himself and then fulfill his promises to them in the literal fashion that our method of interpretation has come to expect of us. And so we talk about the covenants today, but I wanted to be careful that we understand that in talking about the covenants, that doesn't necessarily, that certainly doesn't mean we're associating ourselves with, with, with what we consider covenant theology or any broader covenantal system. It's simply the way that we, in, a, in, in the system of interpretation that we have, regard the nature of the covenants. And that's all I'm going to say about those theolo- the, this theological framework. Now, before we get into these five covenants, let me lay one more foundational piece, and that is the idea of a covenant itself. There are two different types of covenants that we see found throughout the Word of God. There are conditional covenants, and there are unconditional covenants, and they are exactly what you would expect them to be. A conditional covenant is a covenant between two parties where the outcome of the covenant is dependent upon the actions and the circumstances of both parties. Two people enter into an agreement and each side promises to fulfill their end of the bargain. This is what we would typically call today a contract, right? If one of the sides does not live up to their end of the agreement, this is called a breach of contract, and the other side, the contract can be annulled, the other side, the offended party, is no longer obligated to fulfill his end of the contract because there has been a breach of contract. Each person has a responsibility. Each person must uphold their end of the responsibility. And if, he, if one side does not uphold their end, then the other side is no longer obligated to their responsibilities. Now, in our society of relative dishonor, contracts may or may not mean something in our society. But the idea of a contract is the same as a conditional covenant. Benefits are promised, but they are made conditional upon certain actions and upon certain circumstances. And this is in contrast to what is called an unconditional covenant. We find these in the scriptures as well. An unconditional covenant is a covenant between two parties where the outcome of the covenant is not dependent upon uh, the, the actions of the parties, but is guaranteed regardless of actions and regardless of circumstances. Now, a great example of this, again, maybe not in our society, but a great example of this is marriage. Marriage is supposed to be an unconditional covenant. When a man and a woman get up in front of witnesses and make marriage vows, those vows traditionally are unconditional in nature, right? That's actually, that's literally what the vows say. For richer or poorer, sickness or health, better or worse, right? The idea of better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health is an unconditional idea. There are no conditions upon my expressions of fealty and of commitment and of connection to you. Now, of course, through the tragedy of no-fault divorce, this is really not the case any longer. But again, that's the idea, the biblical idea of marriage. Traditionally, the man vows love and faithfulness to a woman regardless of circumstances and actions. Likewise, the woman vows love and faithfulness to the man regardless of circumstances and actions. There are no conditions made to those benefits. I have never been in a marriage, whether I've been officiating it or otherwise, where I've heard the man say, as long as you have dinner ready when I get home every night, I will love you and stay with you. That is nothing. I've never heard that in the marriage vows. Now, maybe that happens nowadays. Uh, I don't know. But that, that, that's not what marriage is supposed to be, right? It's for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness or health. 
The woman doesn't say, as long as you make so much a year, I will stay with you. That's not a part of any marriage vows I've heard. The vows are made 100% free of conditions. And so the promises are expected to be received regardless of personal worth or of circumstances. So that's the idea. That's the difference between what we would call a conditional covenant and what we would call an unconditional covenant. A conditional covenant is a contract. An unconditional covenant would be something more like a vow, right? That you would make regardless of circumstances. Keep those two categories in mind then as we continue. Now today we're going to consider five major covenants in the Bible. We're actually only going to consider three today. These are not by any means all of the covenants, as I've mentioned, or even all of the major covenants in the Bible. But these five covenants are what we would consider to be the covenants that, that, that are a part of this kingdom program, are a part of God's broader redemptive purpose in humanity. That God is giving each one of these covenants, and as He does so, each one of these is given very deliberately in time, in circumstance, and in space as a part of God building His program and showing the next level of His plan for the consummation of all things. When we talked about the concept of a kingdom last time, a kingdom meaning that a person had the right to rule, had a realm over which to rule, and was willing to exercise or was active in exercising the right to rule over that realm. That's what constitutes a kingdom. Throughout the course of history, we find that God is progressively revealing his sovereign authority over his creation. And he does so by establishing these kingdom conditions. The scriptures reveal that all of history will culminate in God having that kingdom, as we've said already, where those who have accepted his authority will be a part of that kingdom, and those who have rejected his authority will still acknowledge it. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord, but they will acknowledge it just prior to being cast into that place of eternal separation from God known as the lake of fire. So that in the end, all history... Every knee bows, every tongue confesses him to be Lord, and those who have received him willingly will live with him forever. In opposition to that kingdom, as we talked about it last week, is Satan, who is actively engaged in his efforts to establish his own kingdom opposed to the kingdom of God, to exalt himself above the stars of God, to exalt himself above the throne of God, to take the throne for himself. We understand that Satan attempted to do that in heaven and and it did not work. However, he was able to, through man, receive dominion over, receive man's inherited dominion. God had given humanity dominion over this earth, dominion over creation. Man ceded that dominion to Satan when he chose to follow Satan's claims of truth rather than God's claims of truth. Thus, Satan has asserted a realm over which to rule, and so Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. He is called the God of this world. And the battle as it's raging today is exercised over that final question. There is the idea of a um, right to rule and a realm over which to rule and then the exercising of that realm. Who has a kingdom? Men and women are born into this kingdom of Satan, but God is actively calling men and women out of that kingdom and into the kingdom of God through his redemptive work. All right, let's walk through these covenants then and we'll start to think through them together. The first of these redemptive covenants that we find that we would consider is called the Abrahamic covenant. And that's the one that we're actually going to be getting more to in the next several weeks in Genesis 15. I'm going to, this week, in order to, to kind of give you a broad overview, I am going to jump the gun on some of my exposition of this. I'm going to let you, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the nature of this covenant. We'll get a little bit deeper into the weeds when we get there in a few weeks. But in Genesis chapter 12, we've been there already. In verses 1 through 3, the Bible says this. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, again, we've already exposited Genesis chapter 12 in our series. Uh, This represents the major narrative transition from the broader aspects of humanity in Genesis 1 through 11 to God working through a singular man and a singular family beginning in Genesis 12. We know nothing of this man, Abraham, to this point, and simply read of the Lord initiating a promise unto him. And that promise, as we talked about it several weeks ago, contains three particular elements. 
One personal, one national, and then one universal. We see the national promise. God says, I will make of thee a great nation. We see a personal promise. I will bless thee. And then we see a universal promise. In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now at this point, God has not covenanted with Abraham. He's only made promises. So Abraham did what God said to do, and he left his father's house and his kindred and eventually went down to the land of Canaan. He would soon leave, however, due to famine and end up in Egypt where he lied to Pharaoh, got himself into a tough spot. Pharaoh took Sarai. God had to intervene in order to protect uh, the, the nature of his plan through, through Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah is restored to Abraham. Abraham comes back to the land. And of course, we've read all of that as, uh, already. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, we then read this. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what would thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. <clears throat> now again, we'll talk about this passage more in detail in the coming weeks. But Abraham is back in the land and he's discouraged because God has promised to bless him. God has promised to give him this seed. And yet he's getting older and he has no seed. He has no child. His wife is barren. And God appears unto him to encourage him. He says, fear not, Abram. He says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I'm looking forward to preaching that message that's coming up in two weeks. Abram questions God's plan, however. He says, look, I have no children. You say that, that, that you're supposed to do this for me, and, and, and God is coming to comfort his heart that he is Abram's protection, and he is Abram's reward. But Abram says, how am I supposed to live out the promises that you've given to me when I have no children? And my heir right now is my servant. He is the one that's going to receive everything if I die today. And the Bible says that God reiterates the promise. He promises that he, that he will have a child and that this child will come from himself, out of his own bowels. It won't be a servant. It'll be someone from him, his own blood. And that he would make of him a great nation and bless the whole world through him. And the text tells us Abraham believed in God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Here we find established one of the most important elements of the kingdom covenants. And one of the most important elements of these covenants is that they're all, as we'll see them, appropriated by faith. That though the covenants themselves, as we will see, are unconditional in nature, these covenants cannot come into effect until the recipients receive them by faith. So that even the various elements of the Mosaic covenant, many of which are unconditional, but one of which we'll see, is not cannot be truly fulfilled in the nation of Israel until they are fulfilled in faith. And this is why when Jesus came the first time, he could not fulfill everything that, he, that, that the Bible promises could be fulfilled to Israel. Well, why? Because Israel rejected it. Israel rejected their king. And unless they appropriate the promises by faith, they cannot be given to them, though they be unconditional in nature. So Abraham believes God, and later in the chapter we find there's a covenant ceremony which actually est establishes this covenant formally. In verse 7 of Genesis 15, God commands Abraham to take a heifer and a she-goat and a ram and two pigeons to divide them upon a hill, half on each side. And in doing so, what would happen would be that the blood of those animals would run into the middle and it would create a trough of blood in between the halves of these animals uh, that, there, there on the hill. 
Now, the essence of this was supposed to be that then, within the covenant system, each of the parties of this covenant would walk through that blood and would give their promises. And by walking through that blood and giving their promises, they would effectively say, we have both made a blood covenant, and if one of us fails, then this is what should happen to us, our, our, our blood can be shed. And so it was a, a, a extremely graphic and, and um, uh, well, bloody ceremony as a means by which to ratify a covenant to ratify an agreement. But the text tells us that something interesting happened. And again, I know I'm jumping ahead. We'll be here again in a few weeks. Something interesting happened, though. Abram spends all day chasing the buzzards away from these animals, protecting this area where the ceremony is to take place. And then the Bible says that Abram fell asleep, that God put Abram into a deep sleep. And that in that sleep, Abram saw a vision where God passed through the blood and promising after passing through the blood to give the land of Canaan to be Abram to his seed forever. Now this is interesting because within the vision, and of course Abram was asleep, Abram does not pass through the blood. Only God passes through the blood. Abram does not have any condition. He made no promises. He has no conditions. The only person who put any conditions or who put any any conditions was, was God and, and His promise. It's an unconditional covenant. A covenant 100% dependent upon God and His faithfulness. God initiated this covenant when Abram placed his faith in God's promises and then he assumed 100% responsibility for fulfilling them regardless of the circumstances. So we see then the Abrahamic covenant becomes a literal, eternal, and unconditional covenant. And contained in the covenant are these three ideas of the land, the seed, and the blessing. That God promised that Abraham would have that land, that his seed would be greater than the stars of heaven, and that through him there would be a blessing through which all the world would be blessed. We recognize that to be Messiah. And it's essential that we do not overlook the fact that this covenant, as reflected in the fact that God walked through the blood after he had put Abram to sleep, is absolutely unconditional in nature. The land, the seed, the blessing were promised to Abraham by God, sealed with a covenant of blood, apart from any conditions placed upon Abraham for their fulfillment. Abraham entered into this covenant by faith alone. He believed God. It was counted unto him for righteousness. He put his faith in God's promises, and God thus gave him those promises unconditionally. And so we learn that Abram does eventually have that promised child. His name is Isaac. And God commands Isaac and every other male born in that family from that point onward to assume a sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. And this sign, which we'll talk more about later, became a physical reflection of the faith of God's people and God's eternal promises to them through Abraham. That's it for what we'll talk about now with the Abrahamic covenant. That leads us to the next covenant that we find, and this is the Mosaic covenant. This covenant is given to the nation on Mount Sinai, beginning with the Ten Commandments and continuing with the rest of the law, which, of course, you can read about in Exodus and Leviticus. Now, the Mosaic covenant is unique upon this list in that it is the only of the five kingdom covenants which is truly conditional in nature. But this is for a very important reason. And that's a reason that we'll explore both this week and next. Now, in Exodus chapter 19, we see God announce this covenant. In verses 5 and 6, the Bible says this, Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak under the children of Israel. So God, notice, notice the uniqueness of this compared to what we talked about with Abraham. With Abraham, God says, I will do this thing for you. Abraham says, how will you do this thing for me? I have no kids. God says, believe me, I will do this thing for you. Abraham says, I believe you. This is all pictured in the idea of Abraham setting up this covenant procedure and then God putting him to sleep and God walking through without anything. There is no if statement in anything that God said to Abraham. There's no, if you will do this for me, then I'll do this for you. There is simply, Abram, I'm doing this for you. Notice the difference in kind with, with the law of Moses. If, God said, if ye will obey my voice, if ye will keep my covenant, 
then you'll be a peculiar treasure unto me. We read the primary terms of the covenant in Exodus chapter 20. That's what we often call the Ten Commandments. Then from Exodus chapters 20 through 23, there are the conditions of the covenant, all the things that God expects of them, uh, all of the, the do's and the don'ts. Now at the end of all of that, we read this in Exodus chapter 24, verses 6 through 8. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and he took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people, all right? So Exodus 20 to 23, there's the covenant. You have the Ten Commandments and then uh, presumably other written elements of the covenant as well. And he takes all of that, the, the, the covenant that God has given in Exodus 20 through 23, and he reads it in the audience of the people. He verbalizes it to the whole congregation. Bible says, And they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. And so we find that there is this promise that God promised that if, that, that, that if they obey him, he will bless them. And in using this idea of blessing, we find that there is a connection here to this extended promise that, that was given to Abraham that there would be a blessing. Though an individual covenant, it forms an extension of that which God has already promised to Abraham that all the world would be blessed. Now, the design of God with the Mosaic Covenant was a come-and-see design that Israel would be rightly related to God and that through being rightly related to God, they would be able to show the world how to be rightly related to God and the world would recognize the God of all flesh and be rightly related to Him and that Israel would be the fundamental and unimpeachable testimony of that rightness through the manner in which they lived their lives. And thus the whole world would be blessed through their blessing through the covenant. So we see the Mosaic Covenant as being this extension of the blessing facet of the promises that God made to Abraham. Now, this being said, the Mosaic Covenant did nothing to override or invalidate the conditional promises that God made to Abraham. And this is where, if you're reading the Bible thematically and you were reading from cover to cover and you got to the, the Mosaic Covenant, you would actually be a little bit confused. You'd say, wait a minute, God gave this blessing to Abraham, the blessing of the seed and the land, and then this, this promise of blessing. And yet here, God has all of a sudden made that promise conditional. But it was unconditional to Abraham. And if the conditional promise of the Mosaic Covenant is layered on top of an unconditional promise, well, that doesn't really make sense, does it? How is it possible that God can put conditions upon the promises to Israel if Israel is the, 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 the grandson of Abraham and Israel is the one through whom these blessings are supposed to flow and yet the blessings that God is giving to Israel are conditional when in Abraham's day God said, I will bless the world through you and, I will, I will be, and, and you will be blessed and yet it was unconditional. And, and if, if we're reading thematically then we would say there's something going on here. There's something not right. There's something slightly inconsistent about this. And if we have that intuition, then I think we're on the right track. That from the beginning, God intended the Mosaic Covenant to be slightly out of step with grace. And that's because the Mosaic Covenant was not permanent. The Mosaic Covenant was to be fulfilled in a different way. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So the Bible's commentary on itself tells us that the law serves several purposes, but what we know and what we see very clearly here is that the Mosaic Covenant was not intended to override the Abrahamic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant was not actually given as the fullest fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant. Thus, to this end, the law, we see, was not given as a means of redemption. The law was not given to redeem a people. Take note of this. Even in its day, the law was not given to redeem a people. The Mosaic Covenant was not given to redeem a people. The law was given to a people who had already been redeemed. They had already passed through the waters 
They had already gone through the Red Sea. They had already seen Egypt destroyed. They had already sung of of God's redemption in, in Exodus 18. They were already a redeemed people. To that redeemed people then came a covenant. And that picture carries forward. The law could save no one. Nor could it possibly ever save anyone. It did not function in this way. It could not function in this way. Much to the contrary, the Bible tells us that there was other purposes for the, for, the, for the law within the scope of history. All of which serve, we find, to give the seed of Abraham a temporary access to the blessings of the covenant until such time that the fullness of the covenant could be realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The law could not fulfill its purpose properly because the law was inherently flawed. And Well, no, excuse me. The law could not fulfill its purpose not because the law was inherently flawed. The law could not fulfill its purpose because man is inherently flawed. And so the law ended up serving not as a framework of faith, but rather just to show how far short man falls from faith. The law made every provision for a life of blessing, but men could not live up to it. And instead it revealed something else entirely. It showed that men, no matter what circumstances and no matter how good the promises are, cannot live up to God's expectations. And not only cannot, but if we look at the promises that were made in the law, the tremendous blessings that God promised, if only they would obey Him, what we find is not just that man cannot live up to God's expectations, but that given all of those earthly promises, man will not. He's not even interested in living up to God's expectations. He just doesn't want to do it. He's going to do his own thing. He still wants the blessings, but he's going to do his own thing. Showing that man is guilty before God. And the law is very, very good, Christian, at showing how guilty we are before God. But do you know what it's very, very bad at doing? Providing any sort of a solution for that guilt. And all of this is evident in the fact that the Mosaic Covenant, unlike the Abrahamic Covenant and other covenants that we'll look at, is conditional. All of the other covenants in the redemptive covenant system here, these kingdom covenants, are, con- are unconditional. But the Mosaic law, it's conditional. A vital purpose, but a temporary purpose. And that because the law is insufficient as a covenant of blessing. The law cannot justify The law cannot bring man into spiritual maturity. The law fosters bondage and guilt. It does not foster redemption or release. The law cannot cleanse the conscience. So the Bible presents then five general purposes for the law that are given in the Scriptures. And the New Testament tells us this. The law existed to make man guilty before God. The law existed as a schoolmaster to guide men unto Christ to show them their need for something greater than just their own capacity to live up to God's expectations because they do not have the capacity to live up to God's expectations. To that end, the idea of of God's moral law and the expectations of God's moral law are very, very good for showing us just how far short we fall of God's righteousness. But again, they cannot do anything but guide us to the solution. They don't have the solution in themselves. They point us to the solution that is Christ. They were there to prove God's love, or prove Israel's love for God, excuse me. They were there to separate Israel from other nations, to make them unique, to make them different from the nations that were around them. And then the law was there to reveal God's character, to show God to be a righteous and a holy God. And all of this was to be in place until that fullness of time when God would bring forth His only begotten Son into history, where that only begotten Son would live that perfect life, would in His flesh fulfill the law of God. He did not come, He said, to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And when He fulfilled the law in His flesh, then He was able to justify others, declare them righteous, and thus make us right before the law through His righteousness. And that is the Mosaic Covenant. Different. Different in kind. And it won't be until next week that we see the fullness, because I I can't get through them all this week, but it won't be until next week that we see the fullness of how this difference plays out and how important that is to what Jesus came to do and what 
what, what, what we're here to do today. So that's the Abrahamic covenant, then the Mosaic covenant. The final one that we talk about today is what's called the Palestinian covenant. Now, this language is perhaps outdated. It's been historically called the Palestinian covenant. Um, the language is perhaps insufficient today to describe the nature of the covenant. There is a nation today called Palestine. It is a brutal, genocidal, and backward people led by a totalitarian government who hold, in, who hold their own people in contempt, who hold their own people in ignorance, and who blame all of their problems upon the nation of Israel for the great sin of existing. This is not what we speak of when we talk about a Palestinian covenant. The Palestinian covenant does not talk about the people who have labeled themselves Palestinians today. The region of Palestine is the region historically called Canaan. Politically, it was known throughout most of history as Israel. It was labeled Palestine in the days of the Romans. And the Romans, when they occupied that land, due to their relative contempt for the Jews, uh, called the nation Palestine. It was an ode back to their, their great enemies, the Philistines. And so they called it Palestine in a, in a, in a real functional way to kind of make a dig at the Jews every time, every time they talked about that region. But it was called Palestine even at the time when the Jews were living in that land by the Romans. And of course, because we live in a Roman world and Rome basically set the course for history, for the history books and everything else, Palestine was the name that it was given uh, for many generations. So the idea of the region being called Palestine actually has nothing to do historically with the people in the, that region who call themselves Palestinians. Much to the contrary, Palestine is synonymous for Canaan, which is synonymous within the biblical record for the land of Israel. Okay? So we read about the Palestinian covenant. We could call it the land covenant. We could call it the Canaan covenant. Whatever you want to call it if you don't like the label. We read about this covenant in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. And this is a covenant that is attached to the Mosaic Covenant, but is also heightening the Mosaic Covenant. Notice what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So, notice the language here beside. The language here does not imply that the words of Deuteronomy 29 are disassociated with the Mosaic Covenant. The idea of beside is not one of disassociation here. But it is one that says that alongside of, or in the vein of, or uh, continuing in this vein of the promise that was made in Horeb. And, of course, Horeb was the place where Mount Sinai is and where, um, where the covenant was made in Exodus chapter 24. And then we find a very interesting promise given to the nation in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. I'm going to read you a little bit of chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. The Bible says this, And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee. Let me just lay this out real quick. In Deuteronomy 29, God says, If you do all of these things, I will bless you. If you don't do all of these things, I will curse you. And the cursings are famine and pestilence. They'll fall before their enemies and such. But notice as we get into Deuteronomy chapter 30, God does not say, If all of these things come to thee, the blessings and the cursings. He says, When. So what we find in Deuteronomy 29 and 30 is that God is prophesying to the nation of Israel that they will not keep the covenant. And that all of the things that they, all of the curses that God said would come to them if they fail will come to them because they will fail. So he says, when all these things, both the blessings and the curses come upon thee, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to thy mind among the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God. So the final promise of God within all of these cursings. God promises that they'll have famine and they'll have pestilence and they'll fall before their enemies and all of these things. Then he says they would be taken into captivity. And then finally he says if they continue to disobey, he would scatter them among the nations. He would scatter them to the winds. And then th this is the, the context then for what we see here. He says, and when they bring those things to mind in the, in, in the, 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 um, among all the nations where God had driven them, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day. 
and thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and will gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. And if any of, uh, of thine be driven out unto the outermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee, which persecuted thee. And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand and in the fruit of thy body and in the fruit of thy cattle and in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law. And if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. So within the scope of Deuteronomy 29 and 30, culminating in these verses are seven milestones in Israel's history. First, Israel would be scattered throughout the nations for their disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant. Second, there would be a repentance regarding this covenant following this scattering. Third, God would then gather the nations from their scattering. Fourth, God would restore his people to the land. Fifth, Israel as a nation would then be converted. Their heart would be circumcised. Sixth, God would curse the enemies of Israel. And seventh, God would bless the nation greatly. Notice that God tells them that they would continue to disobey that they would go into captivity. Now, the first true, uh, the, the, this, they did go into captivity, right? That captivity was finished uh, in um, the, the 160s BC and, uh, uh, well, excuse me, no, the 700s BC. And then following that, that captivity, they were brought back into the land. There was no true dispersal, no true scattering until the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And from that point, the people had been a scattered people. We are, for the last 2,000 years of history, we've been at number one. That the nations have been scattered throughout, the, the, the Israel has been scattered throughout the nations. But the Bible says there's coming a time when there will be a repentance and a regathering on the basis of the law of Moses. That there will be a heart among the people of Israel to once again follow the law. And that is going to draw them together. And at that point, God is going to draw them back into their land. Now, following this national regathering, God promises in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, that there would come a day when he would circumcise their hearts to love the Lord their God with all their hearts. This is the essence of the law in Deuteronomy. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. See, Israel's never been able to do that. They've never done that. They've never followed the law of their God. They've never loved him with all their heart, soul, and might. And they can't do that. They've proven they can't do that. They've proven they won't do that. But there's coming a day where their hearts will be turned back to that covenant. And when it comes back, then God will regather them. And then after he regathers them, the Bible says he will circumcise their hearts. We connect that to the end of those seven years of tribulation when Jesus returns and they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will believe on him and he will save them. And there will be a national redemption. At that point, then God will curse their enemies and God will bless them. Bless them to the extent where, as we see right at the end of Deuteronomy 30, it says, God says, if you will hearken to my voice in all of these things, then I will bless you. See, but their hearts have been circumcised, so they will hearken. They've never been able to keep the law of Moses to this point, and they've never been able to keep it because they can't do it in themselves. But when God saves them, when God gives them a new heart, a heart to love the Lord, then they will love the Lord. And of course, that's coming later on in history. Within the scope of this covenant, then, we find it is dependent upon the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant, but fulfilled in the reality of what Jeremiah 31 calls the New Covenant. We'll talk about that next week. But this is an unconditional part of that covenant. God says these things are invariably going to happen to you. And then he says at the end of it all, he will circumcise their hearts and then he will usher them into everything that he had promised them from the beginning. 
To this end, then, we regard this Palestinian covenant as establishing an unconditional covenant connected to the land. And that's where we're going to stop for this week. Next week, we'll connect the seed promise, and then we'll bring it all into the new covenant that God made in Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll put it all together and see how we believe the church relates to these covenants and where the church does not relate to these covenants. And that's really where all of this is going, so that when we talk about Genesis 15 and we talk about Abraham's role, both in Israel and then in the church, we can parse this properly as it relates to the things that are for the church and the things that are not for the church. Two more covenants yet to explore next time we are together. And next time, of course, we're together, the application will be straightforward because there I get to talk about the new covenant and the new covenant applies itself to the church. But for this week, I'd like for us to contemplate not the plan of God, but as we walk away today, let's contemplate the God of the plan. When we contemplate the God of the plan, the God who has woven this history together, even if you don't agree with me about how we organize the Bible and the themes that we see throughout the Bible, the reason why, again, I'm presenting this is so that we at least understand where we're coming from. That we're not, I'm not just drawing this stuff out of thin air. I'm not just making these claims based on nothing when we start to say, well, this is for Israel and this is not for Israel. But that we have a system that we've developed by which we've attempted in our, uh, in, in our, our feebleness and our frailty to, to, to see how God has organized history and then to align our understanding, because we're going to interpret the Bible in some way, with what we believe God is doing throughout history. A God who has woven this history together and given great and precious promises and yet has also offered so great salvation not only to all of the physical lineage of that faithful man, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to all men and women who would come to him by faith. We contemplate the limited human interactions that we have with an unlimited and unfathomable God. We contemplate the verse that we're memorizing for this month. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. The idea that the God of heaven has deliberate and precious thoughts directed toward my best good. And as one thinks of this idea, as one thinks of a God who would pick out a man who had faith and who would say to that man, I will bless you, and who would set up a covenant with that man and put that man to sleep and walk through the blood on his own, who would obligate himself to a man for no reason other than his own good pleasure. Abraham did not deserve this. It was grace. Abraham had not earned it. It was grace. What kind of a God would do such a thing? Why would a God do such a thing? These are questions I can't answer. However, Paul contemplated this at one time as well. It was actually in the portion of Scripture where Paul was thinking through Israel's relationship to God. In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Romans 9 begins with, what about the nation of Israel? And in 9, 10, and 11, Paul talks about the uniqueness of God's plan for the nation of Israel. And at the very end of that contemplation of God's plan for Israel... Through all of the things which are a little bit confusing and there's uh, some things for the church and there's some things for Israel and they're going to merge together and, and it's, it's kind of mind-bending in some senses, Paul writes this. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall not be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. At the end of the day, maybe 
I'm wrong about all this, right? We are attempting to systematize the Word of God. We believe we see these themes. We trace these themes. It gives us a foundation upon which to, to interpret the Scriptures. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. Maybe covenant theo- theo- theologians are right. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe we're all wrong. At the end of the day, we find that it all points toward redemption. It points toward a God who has stepped into history to redeem His own. A God who has stepped into history to save mankind. There's so much we cannot understand. There's so much we cannot grasp of the greatness of God. Today has been a little academic. There are always going to be points of information and disagreement and opinion. But the fact of the matter is, we serve a God who has inserted Himself into history, regardless of how we might theme that or or, or, or structure that. We serve a God who has inserted Himself into history specifically so that He might in Himself, according to His love and according to His mercy, redeem a lost and rebellious humanity from the consequences of their own sin and of their own choices. So that at the end of all of this, of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And at the end of all of this, to Him will be the glory. Regardless of the ins and outs of how we interpret these texts, we walk away with an unambiguous recognition that when all of the dust settles and when all of history has run its course, the God of the Bible will be sitting on the throne and He will be surrounded by the redeemed and it will be known to everything that is in heaven and that is upon earth that all things are of Him and all things are through Him and all things are to Him. To Him be the glory. And not just to Him be the glory, but to Him be the glory forever. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.